Okay? I want to jump right into some teaching. And um, I think it was the summer, the, uh, the, it was the winter of 2003. How many of you remember that? Winter of 2003? I was, we were on vacation. I discovered, a, I discovered a book, just a little 110-page book. I took it with me on a family vacation. And then Alethea, I read it. And then Alethea read it. And then we sat down and talked about it. And the premise of the book, the main concept of the book, and the conversation that Alethea and I had about it in the days that followed, and really in the years that have followed, have fundamentally altered the priorities and the focus and the balance of our home. For years, I've had countless conversations about this whole idea with many of you, uh, with more than a few people who I'm sure uh, I ran off with my enthusiasm and certainty about this topic. Uh, Some of you are probably tired of hearing me talk about it, but I've never taught about it. I've never preached it in this setting. I've never talked about the biblical basis for it in this setting because mostly I felt like uh, it was just a constant struggle for me, uh, such an everyday effort to implement and to live by it that I didn't feel like I had the moral authority to speak on it. And that's not to say that every topic that we speak on here uh, or that I choose to address is something that I've mastered. Not at all. Like like a couple weeks ago, uh, I was talking with someone a couple weeks ago after speaking about judging. You remember that? A couple weeks ago, we were talking about judging and to judge and not to judge. And I said, I think the reason that message worked for a lot of us is because um, I think we're most effective as communicators when we speak from either our strength or from our weakness. And in that case, on judging, I, I was talking about uh, my weakness because I tend to be a little judgmental. That was my mother that laughed. And I was speaking from my strength because I judge so much and I'm so good at it. So I had the whole thing covered there. Anyway, I've shied away from this topic this morning because I've never felt as though I had the moral authority to speak on the topic. This topic relates directly to the relationship between husbands and wives, between parents and children, and in general to the primary values of our homes. And I've never really felt like I've reached any level of experience in the life of our family because I can't stand it when someone without kids wants to talk to me about how to raise my children. Because you just, I just, I have no desire to listen to that. And as long as I had young children, I just never felt comfortable speaking with any authority on the topic of parenting or child rearing, or for that matter, how to be a godly husband. Somewhere in the last few months, that's all changed. My firstborn turned 21 this year. So far, so. <laughs> Garth's been out partying with Ben, apparently. So... <laughs> So, so yeah, so far so good on that one. In a few months, Alethea and I will celebrate our 25th anniversary, if she doesn't kick me out before that. I've been a father for 21 years. On top of that, I've had a father for 45 years. So I decided that this Father's Day would be a good day to share this with all of you. Now, you need to know right up front that this principle is not an original idea. The content today won't be very original. In fact, for the guy who wrote this book that I discovered a few years ago, it wasn't original for him either because the thesis is rooted in a story in the Bible. And that's where we're going to start this morning. So if you have your Bible, I'd like for you to turn with me to Daniel chapter 1. If you have a Bible and you're sitting somewhere where you can see it, Daniel chapter 1. 
Uh, of course, we'll have the, the verses on the screen, but the book of Daniel's in the Old Testament, somewhat hard to find at times. It's kind of right in the middle. I remember growing up, uh, the middle of my Bible was always right in the book of Psalms, but then I started to use study Bibles. But, you know, the Bible's all the notes and stuff at the end, and, and so now the middle is somewhere around the book of Daniel. So that's somewhere to start, but probably doesn't help you much. Before we jump into the text, let me give you some background uh, because this story sets up this principle that I want to talk about this morning. In the year 605 BC, and I know no one uses that dating method, that terminology anymore, it's CE and BCE, Common Era and Before Common Era, and I'm, just, I'm a pretty trendy guy and all, I mean, you know, you can tell, but I just can't bring myself to use that terminology. So, in the year 605 BC, before Christ was born, King Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of the empire of Babylon, rolled into Israel and Judah and pretty much destroyed the nation. And he went into Jerusalem and he took over the capital city. And as the Babylonians were accustomed to do, he rounded up the best and the brightest of the young nobility and he brought them back to Babylon. And the reason they did this is they worked very hard to take their natural culture away from these men and to replace it with Babylonian culture. So they would take the brightest and the best from the surrounding uh, conquered nations and they would train them to serve the king. And sometimes they would take these men and put them back in their homeland to rule their home countries as representatives of the king of Babylon. So in 605 BC, God was pretty much fed up with the nation of Israel and and Judah and that whole deal, and for all their disobedience and rebellion, and he allowed King Nebuchadnezzar to go in and conquer the nation and bring some people out. Four of the young men that he brought out became very famous men. If you grew up in church, you've heard their names. They're Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. For some reason, we still know Daniel by his Hebrew name, and we know Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as their, by their Babylonian names. But this is the context for the story. So we're going to begin in verse 3 of Daniel chapter 1, and let's just read a few verses. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning. I know, you're thinking, well, I would have been chosen. Yeah, me too. Well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. And the king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years. After that, they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah, and the chief official gave them new names, to Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself. And we're going to stop right there. <clears throat> Here's the situation. Daniel's in a foreign culture. He's probably anywhere from 13 to 17 years old. It's even hard to imagine. His family's probably dead. He's been taken out of his homeland, marched across two deserts to Babylon. They give him a different haircut. They've given him different clothes. He's now a slave. They've given him a new name. They're teaching him a different language, different literature. And finally, for some reason we don't know, Daniel draws a line and says, that's it. That's as far as I'm willing to go. You removed everything Hebrew from me. The one thing you're not going to take away is my commitment to my God. 
And in that particular culture, the food that was offered to the king was first offered to the idols. That's where the food came from that was eaten by the king and his family. The idea, idea being that since the food had been offered to the gods, that anyone who drank this wine or ate this food was partaking in the strength and the wisdom and the blessing of these gods. So anyone who drank the wine and the food, as they rose, rose to positions of power and influence, the credit was given to the, their gods. So Daniel, in his teenage mind, decided there is no way I can cross this line. Cut my hair, change my name, but I cannot defile myself with the king's food. So here's his dilemma. He can't have it both ways. He can either do what he believes God would have him do, or he can do what he thinks the king wants him to do, but he can't have it both ways. So here are his options. He can say, God, I realize that to eat this food is to defile myself, and to refuse to recognize you as God, but I tell you what, I'm going to go ahead and eat it anyway and ask that you would give me grace and forgiveness. His other option would be to say, I'm going to obey God and hope that the king will extend me grace and forgiveness. Now, if you were Daniel, which way would you go? I mean, where are we more likely to find grace and forgiveness? Because if you go with the God option there is an immediate consequence, as you'll find out in just a minute, the king would have your head. If you go with a king option, you ask for grace on God's part, there may not be any immediate consequence. Nothing may happen at all. In fact, God may never even bring it up again. And there were dozens, maybe hundreds of slaves taken from Judah and from Israel, and we don't know any of their names. Obviously, they opted to go the king's route rather than God's route. So here's Daniel's dilemma. He had to decide who he was going to be loyal to, his creator God or his new earthly king. He couldn't have it both ways. He was going to have to cheat one of them out of the loyalty that they believed they deserved. He was going to cheat the king by obeying God, or he was going to cheat God by obeying the king. That was his dilemma, and he knew he couldn't have it both ways. <clears throat> For years, I've been talking with friends, husbands, wives, fathers, mothers, employers, employees about this principle that has been transformational in the life of our family. And we were just talking about this just uh, Friday night. And whether we recognize it or not, all of us, almost every single day, find ourselves in a similar dilemma that Daniel was in. The issue for us, though, isn't what we're going to eat. The issue for us isn't what we're going to drink. The issue for us is usually how... Are we going to spend our time? The issue for us isn't, am I going to serve God or am I going to serve the king? The issue for us is, am I going to take my time and allot it in such a way that it's honoring to my family? Or am I going to take my time and use it in such a way that is honoring to my workplace and my hobbies and my leisure and my interests? And every single day, you and I make decisions about how we invest our time. And all of us, by nature of the fact that there isn't enough time to do it all, all of us cheat somebody. All of us cheat somebody. Let me take a little pressure off. Some of you think that the reason you can't get everything done the way you need to get it done is because you don't have the right schedule. That's not your problem. Some of you think that the reason you can't get everything done the way you need to get it done is because you're not disciplined enough. You're too distracted. That's not your problem. Some of you think that the reason you can't get everything done the way you want to get it done and you think you need to get it done is because you don't have enough money. That's definitely not your problem. 
The problem is this. There is not enough time to get everything done. Our problem isn't discipline or scheduling or money. Our problem is that there's too much to do and too little time to do it. Let me just illustrate it this way. If you sat down at work and decided exactly how much time you would have to give to your occupation in order to get everything done the way you think it needs to get done, you know, to get it all done on time with a certain degree of quality, to take advantage of every opportunity, to follow every potential sale, you know, every meeting, every contact, most of us would never go home if we were to do everything that we could do at work. At the same time, if we sat down and looked honestly at our home lives and added how much time would be required to fill all the love tanks at home with our spouse and our kids and our parents and our in-laws, to spend enough time with our kids where they would say, Dad, we've played enough. We're finished playing. Yeah, exactly. You've never heard that, have you? You laugh because you know it's a bottomless pit. If you have young kids at home or you had young kids, you know they'll never say, Dad, we've played enough. Why don't you go spend some time with Mom now? Why don't you go have an adult conversation? Dad, we've played enough. Why don't you go back to work? It'll never happen. But if somehow you can figure out how much time is required so that all the love tanks are full at home, if you did that, you'd probably determine that you'd have about 10 hours a week to actually go to work. There is not enough time to get it all done. There's just not. It's not a discipline issue. It's not a schedule issue. It's, it's not even an expectations problem. It's not a time management problem. You're like, I'd, I'd read a book on time management if I had time. Well, here, don't bother because it's not a time management problem. There just isn't enough time. So consequently, all of us have to cheat. All of us have to decide, as much as I need to do that, I'm going to do this instead. All of us have to cheat. And here's the problem. Here's the bottom line for this morning. In your life, in your schedule, in your priorities, in your time, who are you cheating? Oh, if that isn't awkward enough, here's here's a better one for you. Who feels cheated? Who in your life feels cheated? They don't use those words. Until after today, you can thank me for that. It might become a popular term in your family. It has in ours for the last 11 years. And we say it in different ways, but as you listen to the conversations and you listen to the complaining and you listen to the issues, who in your life, or more specifically, who in your family feels cheated? Let me make a prediction. For most of us, for most of us, it's not our employer. It's not our boss. It's not our business. It's not our customers. Sometimes in your families. If they had the opportunity, if they had the words to frame it in, they would say, yeah, I kind of feel cheated. I feel like some of the time and attention and affection that should be directed to me is going somewhere else. Because we're all cheating somewhere, someone, because there's just never enough time. Now, now, if you're a Christian this morning, here's a deal that we often do with God. You use your own terminology, but here's basically essentially what we do. We say, God, I know I should be giving more time to that. But I can't, so would you fill in the gap while I do this over here? 
God, you know, I've got so much going on. I've got so many expectations. I got my to-do list at work. It's just, you know, you've seen it, God. So I've got all this to do at work, and, and, and I've got to do this with the kids, and I've got to spend more time with my wife or with my husband. I've got all this stuff going on. So God, you know that I love my family. And Lord, you know that's the most important thing to me. So God, I'm asking you to pour out your grace in that arena of my life while I spend my time and energy on this, on this job, on this project, at work, on the expectations that other people have of me, on this hobby, on this leisure thing. So God, give them grace. Help them understand that I'm doing all of this for them. God, please fill in the gaps there while I spend all my time over here. Here's the problem with that. When we ask our families to be understanding and to try to understand, you know, dad's so busy, mom's so busy. I really wish I could be there, but I got this thing, and I got a chance to work overtime, you know. When we ask our family to be understanding, here's what we communicate. And it may not be what we're saying, but it's what they hear. That you're important, but this is more important. That's the way it's being processed emotionally. You're important. I wish I could be there. I wish I could get home earlier. I wish I could get the weekend off. I wish I could go to your game. I wish I could serve with you at church. You're important. But this is kind of more important. Now, if you ask me, is, is this more important? I would say, oh, no, you are the priority. No, you are what's important to me. You, you know, but emotionally, the way it's processed in real time with respect to the way you actually spend your time, you know, it's everybody at work is more important. Keeping them happy is more important. Money is more important. People who are strangers on the other end of a phone are more important. All that stuff is more important. That's the way it gets processed. It's like if you were to ask me to hold this rock. Or maybe, can you hold uh, yeah, if you were to ask me to hold this, I tried with a bigger rock and, yeah, so picture a bigger rock. If, if you were to ask me to hold this rock for an indefinite period of time, you say, Todd, would you be willing to hold this rock for me for a while? I would say, of course, I'd be happy to do that. I'm glad to hold this rock for you. I'm mentally willing to hold this rock for you. And for a while, or maybe for a long time, my mental willingness would enable me to hold this up. To go on doing life carrying your rock around. My mental willingness. But eventually my physical weakness would overcome my mental willingness, and I would drop the rock somewhere eventually. As much as I'm committed to you, I've said I would hold it, I will hold it. As much as I'm willing, as much as I'm determined, I would hold it, and hold it, and hold it, and in my mind, I am so willing, and I'm so willing, and no one's more willing, but at some point, my physical weakness overrides my mental willingness, and the rock's going to drop. I'm not going to drop it because I break something, but just picture that. In the moment that the rock drops, you would hear a loud noise, and you would turn around, and you'd be like, what happened? What happened to my rock? And you would focus exclusively on that moment in time when the rock hit the floor, and you'd say, why'd you drop the rock? You'd focus on the moment. And I'd try to explain to you, it wasn't the moment, it was a process. I've been holding it for a long time. And after a while, I just couldn't hold it any longer. Listen, listen. When we expect our families, our spouses, our children, when we expect our families to be understanding, what we're saying to them is, just hold on. Just hold on. You know, understand. Vacation's coming. Hold on. Just hold on. 
and our wives and our husbands and our children, because they love us, are willing to hold on. And they say, I'll hold on. I'll try to understand. I'll hold on. Holding on here. But over time, emotional weakness overrides their mental willingness. And the rock hits the floor. When it hits the floor, all you'll be able to focus on is that moment in time. And you'll say, what happened? Why did you drop that? Or it might sound like this, Pastor, I don't, I don't understand. She just walked in and just out of the blue, she says, I don't want to be married to you anymore. I don't know where that came from. Everything was going fine. I kept looking over there and she's holding the rock. I mean, she's doing fine. She's holding the rock. She's only been holding it for a while now. And suddenly I take my eyes off her for like two seconds and I hear this big crash and I come home and the world's a different place. I don't understand what happened all of a sudden. Pastor, I don't understand what happened, but out of the blue, my husband drops a bomb that he's tired of the responsibility, doesn't want to be married anymore. I don't know what happened. It's so sudden. I don't know what happened. All of a sudden, my kid's grades just nosedived. It's like out of nowhere. They just, they just tuned us out. It's like we're not even here. It's just changed overnight. <laughs> it's not the moment. It's not a moment in time. It's a process. It's over time. Today, there are probably some people in this room and in this building, some husbands and some wives and some teenagers and some children, and they're sending signals and they're saying, I'm willing. I'm willing to hold your rock. I'm strong enough to hold it for now, but I've been holding it for a while. I don't know how much longer I can hold on. That's why someone's going to come up to me after this message and they're going to say, I wish I'd heard that three, five, 10, 20 years ago. Let me tell you what, when the rock falls, everybody knows and everybody has an opinion and everybody scrambles and everybody, everybody becomes very willing at that point to do whatever they need to do to get the burden lifted and put the pieces back together. But my experience is this, that there are some rocks that when they fall, they shatter and you never put them completely back together. The moral of the story is this. We've got to learn to cheat in the right places at the right times. And home is never the right place. In your family, in your schedule, in your family's calendar, there is never a right time to cheat because unlike the work dynamic, unlike the exercise thing, and unlike, unlike your hobby, uh, and even unlike church, there's a relational thing that comes back to acceptance and self-esteem and all kinds of things that complicate the family dynamic. And they'll hold out, and they'll hold out, and they'll hold out, and they'll try to be understanding, and they'll try to cut you slack, and they'll try to be patient, and they'll try to understand, but eventually their emotional weakness overcomes their mental willingness, and all bets are off. And it'll seem sudden to you, like it was overnight things changed. So guys, since it's Father's Day, let me talk to you specifically. First of all, let me say how much we appreciate you. We appreciate your work ethic. We appreciate your efforts to provide, to lead in your families and in our church and in our community. We are extremely blessed in this church with the, with the number of men and the quality of men in our fellowship. Some of you are not the same men that you were when we first met you because God has just transformed you and he's doing a work in your life and you are a work in progress and we're so thankful to that. So guys, we hold you in high regard. Now let's say thank you to our guys, all right? You're like, that's nice, but what's coming? Well, here you go. Okay, guys. We know where we cheat. We cheat at home so we can have more time at work. 
It's understandable because our wives and our kids are they're just unbelievable, aren't they? I mean, I mean, hold on, just hold on. Just hold that rock a little while longer, just a few more years, you know? And they'll hold on. It's amazing how long they'll, they'll carry that burden. And we check in, and, you know, we're just so emotionally out of it sometimes. We're convinced that everything's okay because the kids are fed and the dishes are done and there are clean socks in the drawer and all the kids haven't dropped out of school yet. And on top of that, there's, you know, she's still bringing in a paycheck, so it's all good. Guys, the reason we economize in our marriage and in our home life instead of trying to economize at work is because when you economize in your marriage, there is no instant consequence. When I economize at work, I'm afraid of what might happen. You know, I'll make less money. They might discover that they can make do without me. Someone else might get my job or my promotion or my bonus, you know, and I won't be recognized. I've got to take the work while I can. And it seems that when we economize at home, it seems that there are no consequences. Nothing changes right away. But, man, if I start economizing at work and the time at work, I can see the consequences right away. It's like this. If we have two extra hours, where are we most productive? Well, man, it's like if I spend two extra hours at work, I got something to show for that. You know, I got some stuff done. I got, uh, you know, the to-do list is shorter. There's my desk. You can almost see it now. Uh, and, 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 hey, payday, you know, I see it. Take those extra hours on the side. I got something to show for it. Stuff was accomplished. Money was collected. People noticed. People talked about me. I got something to show for that. Send me home with two hours of discretionary time? I'm just home. What am I going to do? What am I going to get accomplished? On a rainy day, I can't even mow the lawn. The two hours go, you know, that I, while I watch a movie with my family, I mean, take my wife out to dinner, really, or play some game with my kids, and that's all warm and fuzzy, you know? What do I have to show for that? Because there's nothing to count at home, right? You can't chart it. I can't put anything on a graph. I can't cross off the to-do list at home. No one's recognizing me for my achievement and dedication at home. Oh, yeah, Father's Day, thanks for the card and the tie and eating the socks. It's great. But no one's celebrating my performance in the clutch. I've got nothing to talk with my friends about tomorrow. So consequently, because of this thing that's in us, and oh, oh, by the way, this isn't just a guy thing. It's in all of us. The temptation is to say, look, God, would you fill in the gaps here at home? Because I've got to fill in some gaps at work. So, so here's, the, here's what I'm saying to you guys since it's Father's Day. You've got to learn, figure out how to cheat at work and not cheat at home. You've got you to gotta cheat somewhere because there's not enough time to get it all done. There just isn't. You know what we do? We take advantage of the loyalty of our families and the loyalty of our wife and kids in order for us to be loyal to people who are less loyal to us. Our bosses, our coworkers, our customers, our clients. Doesn't make any sense at all. And since our family is so loyal, I mean, they're amazing. You know, I can therefore abuse their loyalty and demonstrate more loyalty in another area of my life where less loyalty is returned to me. This doesn't make any sense. Face it, most of us are two or three bad decisions away from losing our jobs anyway losing our businesses, losing our influence in the workplace. Think about that. Just two or three bad decisions. We're done. I mean, for some of us, it would only take one major screw-up. Done. 
And we still go back to the family who's been holding rocks while we've been out being loyal to an entity that isn't really all that loyal to us. I don't know what it looks like for you. You've got to have that discussion and figure that out. But you've got to learn to cheat at work instead of cheating at home. Otherwise, one day you're going to hear a crash, and when you turn around, you're going to wonder what happened. And then you're going to have to take a lot of time away from the thing that you've been given the time to instead of preventive maintenance. You're going to have to pick up the pieces, trying to put it all back together. And sometimes the pieces can't be put back together. Some of us, men and women, are trading what's most valuable to you for dollars. Yeah, we can all just swallow hard there, okay? You're giving up what you would say this morning is the most important thing to you. Your relationships at home, your relationship with your spouse, your relationships with your kids, your influence with them. You know, this is what's most important to me, of course. And moment after moment, day after day, you're asking them to be understanding, to give you a little more time, to be more understanding, to hold this rock for just a little bit longer, you know. And you're doing all that for the sake of some dollars, You say it's about security. You say it's about stability. You say it's about getting out of debt. You say it's about things that you need. It's for the sake of some dollars. Some of us might need to take a pay cut. Adjust your financial goals. Give yourself a little more time to get where you need to be for the sake of your marriage and your children and your family life. Do whatever you need to do to quit cheating at home. This is, this is a, I know this is heavy stuff. You weren't expecting this today, and I'm sorry to throw this on you, but the, this is the truth that I'm so convinced of that I, I, I think I'd fight to the death on this one. I'm so convinced of it. And if you think you're doing right by your kids by providing them with all the stuff that you think they ought to have because their friends have it and they'll enjoy it and they want it and you think it'll improve your social standing with other people that you're trying to impress that you don't even like, listen carefully. The greatest gift that you can give your children is a healthy marriage. Just let that sink in for a second. Oh, oh, listen, if you're a single parent right now, just give me a minute, okay? Because I'm getting to you, okay? Um, so don't tune out yet. But for those of you who are in two-parent homes, if it comes down to cheating your time with your husband or your wife or cheating your time with your children, here's a twist. Cheat your time with your children for the sake of your marriage. Cheat your time with your children to focus on time with your spouse. I know that's pretty radical. I'll tell you why. I don't know. I've just spent enough time around people at different stages of life. I was in youth ministry for seven years. I've been in this role for 17. I'm a parent of a 21-year-old and a nearly 17-year-old. Of course, I'm only 31, but I'm convinced of this as ever before. That your marriage will determine the personal security of your children. More than you want well-educated kids, you want secure, confident, self-reliant children, don't you? And the health of your marriage translates into personal security for your children. And it's personal security that allows them to say no to say no to alcohol, to say no to drugs, to say no to the party scene, to say no to premarital sex, to say no to the wrong kinds of friends, to say no to all kinds of stuff that's destructive. And if there's a, it's that sense of security that enables them to say yes to things that they should say yes to, like service to others. 
you know, to have healthy interpersonal relationships with other people of all generations. And eventually, their own husband, their own wife, their own children. So the greatest gift we can give our children is a healthy marriage. That's why at some point, you're going to have to cheat your kids to focus on your spouse. And when you do, everybody wins. So what's that look like? Oh, I don't know. How about pay a babysitter and take your wife out to dinner? can't leave my little one with a bit one. My kids are fairly normal. Worked for us. That's all I'm saying. Just give it a shot. Pay a babysitter. Go away for the weekend. Start with dinner. Try that. Okay, if you're a single parent right now, this is for you. Let me, let me just offer you this. You're the exception to this rule, actually. And I don't often offer exceptions, but you're the exception to this rule for now. Most of the time, most of the time, the last thing that your child needs is for you to pursue a romantic relationship. What they need is the security and the stability of your attention. Oh, you need some adult time. I get that. Let your kids see what healthy adult relationships look like. You can have a life. You ought to. But make sure it's healthy, balanced, guided by biblical guidelines and principles and values. And if God leads someone into your life and you believe he's leading you two together to eventually get married and to parent your child or your children together, perhaps blending two families, then for the sake of your children, enter into that relationship with all the biblical guardrails in place. Show your children what it means to pursue this relationship with God at the center. And then do everything it takes to make it the godliest relationship you know how to have. So I'm going to give you a question that if you're married, you ought to ask your spouse. Alethea and I talk about this all the time. We don't always get it right. We're constantly wrestling with this, but we talk about it and then we tweak things and we've done it even in the last month. We've had to make some, some adjustments. And I want to encourage you to talk about this. Ask the question. Ask your spouse. Do you feel cheated? Just be ready because you may not like the answer, but ask the question. Because a lot of us are tempted to cheat our spouses and cheat our children for the sake of our jobs, obviously for the sake of recognition and money. Some of us are tempted to cheat our spouses and cheat our children for the sake of things. Sometimes it's for the sake of things like ministry, in my case, you know, serving people. In those cases, I really, we really need to get honest about our motivation then. Some of us are tempted to cheat our spouses and to cheat our children for the sake of the house that we live in and the car that we drive and the vacation we want and the latest and greatest gadgets. And these things cost money, so, you know, I'll see you later, got to go make the money. Some of us are tempted to cheat, our, to cheat our spouses and cheat our children for the sake of what our house looks like and how clean it is and what the lawn looks like and how clean the car is. You know, it's like, yeah, we could spend time together and we could go, you know, do something. About, hey, I really need to mow the lawn. You know, what will the neighbors think? No one likes a clean, orderly, presentable, clutter-free home more than I do. But I refuse to live in a clean, orderly, clutter-free house where there's tension and spite and disconnection. I refuse. Give me some clutter. 
Give me some carpets that need to be vacuumed or washed or replaced or something. Give me some dirty dishes in the sink if it means I can chill out with my family and we can enjoy the things that we like to do together. And peace prevails in our relationships. The other stuff can wait, as far as I'm concerned. I know this is Church Picnic Sunday and it's Father's Day and you thought we could have a nice lighthearted kind of pat you on the back kind of day, but I'm sorry to disappoint you on that. And I understand if you're on a smartphone right now looking for a new church to visit next Sunday. You don't really need to bother with that. Just let me know what you're looking for. I can probably recommend it. This town's got everything. Anyway, who are you cheating? Where are you cheating? Who feels cheated? You owe it to the people you love to discover the answer to that question. So there are three things that come out of the book of Daniel in this story that I think have powerful application for us. The first one we've already read. You know what Daniel did up front before he knew how the story would play out? Because he didn't know that he was going to be known for Daniel in the lion's den. He didn't know that. He didn't know that he was going to be known as Daniel, the guy who made up his mind and put the king to the test kind of thing or God to the test. No, before he knew how anything was going to work out, before he knew if he would even survive, the Bible says that Daniel made up his mind. That is, he decided up front that I will not cheat my God for the sake of pleasing a pagan king. Not going to do it. I don't know how it's all going to play out. I don't know if I'll survive. I don't, before I know any details, though, before I know how it's going to end, before I even know how to approach this, Daniel says he resolved in his heart. He made up his mind. I'll tell you where this starts for you. This starts for you as a leader in your home, as a parent, when you just decide... I don't know how it's going to work out. I don't know what's going to happen financially. I don't know what's going to happen in my business, but I've just decided I'm not going to cheat my family, period. Now, let's talk about details. That's where it begins. Before you know the hows, determine the what. I will not rob from my family and from my marriage, and I'll not cheat them for the sake of dollars. And then work out the details later. There's something else that comes out of this story. This is a part that we just can't factor in. What happens after Daniel makes up his mind? Starts with the, let's just start with verse 8 again. Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. So he goes to his handler and he's like, uh, yeah, I know what you're doing here, but I'd like to be the exception. And I know you've been doing this for years now. You know, whenever you, you guys go out and invade another country, which you're quite good at, but whenever you do that, I know you do this thing. It seems to be working pretty good for you. I mean, you're the Babylonian empire after all. But I'd like to be an exception. Could I have a pass on this? Imagine the fear going into that conversation. Verse 9. Now. It's the next word. Now. God. Isn't that great? Now, God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. Here's the thing. You can't factor in until after the fact when you've made up your mind. After you, that when you decide to order your life and order your marriage and order your family the way God has called you to order it, you have no idea what God is capable of doing in the area of your job and your career and your finances once you give him space to do it. It comes down to the place that instead of saying, God, I need to spend these extra couple hours at work today or these extra hours on the job on the side, I'm trusting you to fill in the gaps at home. I know you will. You're a good God. Thank you, God. Instead of saying that, where we say, God, I'm going to be what you've called me to be at home. I'm going to get things in their proper place. I'm going to trust you to fill in the gap at work and with my boss and with my finances. Now, God. What we don't know is what God is willing and able to do in the area of our lives once we get our priorities right. Last thing comes out of the story, at least on this topic, is very practical. Here's what happens. We're still in verse 9. 
Now, God had caused the official, I think, God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, he said, please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing, that's only 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. Hmm. So he agreed to this and he tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. Oh, and Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. And at the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar, and the king talked with them, and he found them equal. He found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. Now, God. Here's the third thing. God, I'm going to put you to the test. They put God to the test. Why not put God to the test? Give him a month. Take 30 days and say, for these 30 days, God, I'm going to cheat at work and invest at home. Every time I'm asked to stay late, work on my day off, take that extra shift, I'm going to politely decline. And I'm going to spend that time with my wife, with my husband, with my kids. And at the end of 30 days, we evaluate. I I just dare you. I just dare you try that. For some of you, you need to sit down with your spouse and talk about where you need to make adjustments. Then maybe you need to go to your boss and say, look, I, I need to rework my schedule. I need to be more available for my family, and I know I'm gonna, it's going to cost me some money, and I know I may not get that bonus or the promotion or may not be considered for whatever, but um, this is what I need to do, and I'd like to, I'd like to do it for 30 days, and then let's talk. For some of you, you're your own bosses. Uh, your time is yours. I want to challenge you to take the next month to honor your family. I know it's summertime. It's bread and butter time. I get that. What's the point of asking us to do this in January when there's no sacrifice involved? I know there's sacrifice. It's kind of the point. So I'm challenging you to put God to the test, to cheat at work, say no to some opportunities, say no to some opportunities to make some money. And we might even lose some customers So what? But this may be the summer you start to lose your kids. Who knows? We've got to choose. We've got to choose who we're going to be loyal to. So I dare you to pull back on the hours and pass on some opportunities and focus on time with your spouse and your kids. Just for 30 days. Just do it for 30 days. When Alethea and I started trying to implement this principle in our lives, our kids were nine and five. We weren't quite six years into Faith Community Fellowship. We didn't know then. We were still like two years away from buying this property. I mean, things were just getting started. Um, We were struggling to really find traction as a church. I was a full-time pastor and a part-time employee at the Y. We were homeschooling our kids. We were pursuing the vision that we believe God had given us for ministry and family. But as a result of our decision to cheat work, which for me meant cheating at church in order to focus on the health 
of our family relationships. As a result of that, some programs at church never got off the ground. We pulled the plug on some things at church that just, and other things just took a lot longer to accomplish. And this is still true at Faith Community. Because as many hours as we'd love to give, as much as I love the church and the role that God has called me to in it, I understand that it's my God-given responsibility first to prioritize my life in accordance with the priorities of Scripture. It means doing my work as unto the Lord, loving my wife as Christ loved the church. And I realize that we're never called to violate principles of God in order to maintain the blessings of God. And I've always just wanted to be a part of a church that God was free to bless. So for us, this intentional decision to reorder our time and to protect our time commitments was, was over 11 years ago. Our kids aren't into Disney Channel anymore. No one in our home requires Alethea's constant attention anymore. I can work a few more hours now. We're still all home for dinner several nights a week. That's kind of the gauge for us. And best I can tell, we actually enjoy each other's company. I love to go home. Oh, but back to you. Where are you cheating? Who are you cheating? Who in your life feels cheated? It isn't enough for your spouse and kids to be your priority. They need to feel like your priority. It's not enough to love someone in your heart. You need to love them with your schedule, with your availability. Are you willing to have that difficult conversation with where everybody kind of gets to say, yeah, I kind of feel cheated and I kind of feel like work is more important and the house is more important and your friends are more important and money is more important and church is more important and the kids, you know, are more important. You just don't feel all that important. Are you ready to hear that? And are you ready to make up your mind that we're not doing marriage and family like that anymore? We're, not doing, we're just not going to do it anymore? I'm not doing work like that anymore? I don't know how it's going to work out. I don't know the details, but I've made up my mind. I'm not going to cheat my wife. I'm not going to cheat my husband. I'm not going to cheat my kids. Then are you ready to watch for the now God? To see what God might be willing to do when you order your time in such a way that honors your most important relationships. Thank you so much for staying tuned in this morning. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, this is so much easier to talk about than it is to actually do. So God, in your grace, would you just show us how to sort this out and how to work this into our lives? For some in this room, this brings up a lot of hurt, maybe some regret. God, give us wisdom to see truth and to do what we need to do. Bring healing in our relationships. Then God, I pray that you bless the sacrifices that are made for the sake of our marriages, for the sake of our families. And God, we will always give you glory for what you do when we order our lives the way you've called us to order them. And may we be faithful where you've called us to be faithful. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's just, let's just set in here for a second, okay? And we say this almost every Sunday, but if you could wait till after this song to leave your seat. Let's just sit, let's, in the quiet, 
and let's listen for God's voice. Let's have a little time with him. Listen. I be Oh, mm-hmm. 